0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, federal rebates available for electric cars. This, as we say bye-bye to the smart car due to lack of sales. An update on the chaos surrounding Venezuela. And Doug Ford headed to the U.S. to sell Ontario to the states and made a stop by Fox News. And look better than he ever has on Canadian media. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about cars. Federal rebates have become available for electric cars. Uh, Easy on those people that are uh, trying to buy the uh, high-priced Tesla, not necessarily you. Um, but it does include some other cars. Uh, not quite the rebate that we saw with the uh, with the Ontario government. Theirs was at fourteen thousand uh, dollars. This closer to five thousand dollars for an electric car. Twenty five hundred of a rebate for a hybrid. To talk more about all of this, Lorraine Sommerfeld is with us, auto writer with Post Media, mother column in the Spec, and host of the Lemonade Car Show. She's with us now. Lorraine, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
1: How
0: you doing? I'm doing well, and you? All right, your thoughts on this rebate before we get to the smart car
1: okay there's a general school of thought that if something requires an ongoing rebate it's a failed product okay and I understand that Dennis DeRosier is really big on this especially with cars however we're talking about new technology that's very expensive to develop and it's almost as if like we are going to end up there so to help manufacturers get consumers to that starting point that's why they were put in place Um, I think axing them as fast as um, the current government did, I don't think that was the brightest idea. I do believe they were little—they were too generous. Like, I think it was too high. Um, seeing the feds come in with something that's a little more dialed back makes more sense. All of them, when they said everyone but Tesla, that's BS. You do for all or you do for none. Like, uh,
0: well, I think it's a cost thing. I think they're doing the Model 3, which is cheaper. They're just not going for the $150,000 model.
1: Well, that's the thing, though. The Fed's at least put in, you know, into what bracket they're willing to do some yeah. subsidizing, which makes sense. Um, Ontario didn't have that kind of a cap on it before. And, yeah, I don't want to help my neighbor drive a $150,000 car. Thank you very much. Um, so I understand. But I have cool. a hard
0: time with my neighbor driving a Volkswagen electric car that's worth $40,000 that I paid fourteen with it.
1: I know. I've got a colleague that says you should be able to go drive all your neighbor's cars because you help buy them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so let me ask you this, Lorraine. Is it our responsibility to pay for this, or is it the car companies? And I ask you that for this reason, because once they strike gold, they'll make a fortune off these things.
1: Oh, yeah, and they won't be handing it back. And I actually asked this to, um, I was in Miami with Smart Car when they introduced their electric two years ago, all electric. And I was talking to the head of their research out of Germany, and I said to her, "What's going to happen when the political will winds are changing? Which is exactly what's been happening with the regimes that are coming in." I said, "Because those specific uh, political regimes, they're not going to be behind this. You know, they're
0: well." That's it. They talk about changing habits. It's like in order to in order to make that big of a difference, it won't only change habit. It'll also change the way we vote.
1: Well, and. I, when I asked her that, I said, basically, you're going to see all these subsidies slashed because of what's getting voted in, then what do you do? And her answer was that what manufacturers are banking on is the more they can make as in numbers of cars, they can bring down the battery costs faster and faster, and that is happening. Mm. As we're getting batteries with extended um, life in them, like they're going longer and longer and longer, they're lasting longer, as well as the mileage and the distance on them, plus the... The costs are tumbling, and she said manufacturers, and she could have been blowing sunshine up my butt, I don't know, but she said what they're racing for is to make them so close in cost to an ICE engine that they're not going to be relying on those because she said right. manufacturers know they can't. They know they can't. Rely Should on you them. buy
0: an electric car or lease it? Would there be a resale value for an electric car?
1: Yeah, um, you should go buy a used one because uh, they—that's where you get a deal.
0: Is that right? Yeah, but again, (laughs) what about uh, you know we 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 still don't know how durable, how long they last, how what the battery life is. We're
1: we're getting pretty good. Stick with Toyota. Like start with someone that's been doing it forever. Yeah, the uh, Prius—they invented the hybrid game. So start there. But no, it's they really are. They're amazing to drive. Like it's a very cool. It's technology.
0: Yeah, I have been in one. They are amazing. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. It's great. And we're going to end up there. But if you're not sure, go go hybrid or look at that. But you can get great deals on hybrids and so, electrics and plug-ins.
0: So why the failure of the smart car?
1: That's a lot of reasons. That's, that car is really made for small, tight European. Yeah. Uh, picture old school yeah. cobblestone roads and stuff. It's They're made for Italy. For <laughs> it is. Yeah. It is. Uh, uh, that's deadly driving there. but Um, no, that, that car was never, they pushed it really hard here. I did a lot of gigs with smart car. I've been in the Yukon in January in a, in a smart car. I've done some dumb stuff with them, Hmm. but that car, unless you live right in the heart of a very urban core and never really plan on leaving Hmm. it, that's all it is. It's a covered bicycle sort of thing. The other problem, smart, Mercedes was dumb about this. They had their six speed automatic transmission was terrible. It was horrible. It was crap. You could hear that little car coming from three blocks away. They stuck with it instead of fixing it sooner. And that really put a dart in their sale
0: So end of the day, just too small, too much of a puddle jumper?
1: Um yeah, there is no cabin space in it. Like I said, I did a week long gig in it up north and we couldn't you could put a backpack behind the seat and that was it. <laughs> it. It it has its place. Like it's okay. But for a lot of people, most of us can't afford to have a second car, whether yeah. it's a smart car or an electric car or something like I can't I can't have a backup pair of boots it's kind of hard to have a backup car
0: so this is less about the technology and more about the vehicle design itself
1: I believe so yeah Canada is not the best proving ground for that and we we don't need massive big cars but we certainly need something most people need something bigger than a smart car
0: I wonder if it came with a harness so you could carry it on your back Yeah, really, like
1: a backpack. That's right. And then
0: like a turtle, you just fall back on the wheels and it takes you away.
1: You've been watching too many cartoons, Scott. You think so?
0: I don't know. It's my childhood. Uh, Lorraine Sommerfeld is been with his auto writer with Post Media, Motherload Column in the Spec and host of the Lemonade Card Show. Uh, thank you so much, as always, Lorraine. What are you driving? Same same uh, truck last time? Uh, F 150 diesel. You could put one of these things in the back. <laughs> I can't put
1: much in the back with these big extended cabs. Yeah,
0: there you go. Well, you can just put it in the back seat then. There we go. All right, Lorraine, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, we're talking about uh, electric cars, smart cars, a couple of uh, different announcements here. Uh, federal rebates uh, kick in for, uh, you might remember in uh, Ontario, that you could get up to $14,000 from the Ontario government for the purchase of an EV. Uh, that was gone with the wind government, but uh, now in the last Liberal budget, they have announced that uh, they will offer you a rebate of up to $5,000 off the cost of an electric vehicle, 2500 off a hybrid Uh, so that's new information out plus uh, we remember when the smart car came in. Remember a lot of people f- compared it to a golf cart. It's uh, quite small wheelbase, not much room inside, but um, this micro car kind of appealed to people in urban areas and in small in areas where there was a small amount of space and, and, you, and you just sort of needed a puddle jumper to get you from point A to point B. Uh, now Daimler has announced that uh, they're uh, canceling uh, the smart car in the United States and Canada just due to lack of sales. To talk more about all of this, Marvin Ryder, business professor, to Group School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Thank you, Marvin. As always, much appreciated. Glad to be here. So, the demise of the smart car in North America is this because of technology, or is it just a bad design for North America? <laughs>
2: Well, I'm not sure actually either of those I would credit right at the beginning. Uh, Daimler made a decision with this car. So when the smart car was first introduced nearly 20 years ago, it was a gasoline-powered car. And you're right. People compared it to a pregnant roller skate, uh, just enough for two people just to get around.
0: Actually, it was diesel, too, in Europe. Started in Europe as a diesel.
2: Right. Uh, But it was just a small car, commuting car. But they made the decision in 2017 to stop it being a gas-powered car and made it an electric car. And that, to me, really began the the end of the car because as an electric car and given its small size, you could only travel – wait for it, Scott – 93 miles on a charge, 93 miles on a charge. Is
0: that because of lack of space for a battery?
2: Right, or for, for a lot of batteries. Right. It just wasn't that much. So a 93 miles, you know, you would be having a tough time commuting, let's say from Hamilton to Toronto and back, assuming no headwind, no, nothing else. And so its ability to be a commuter car was dramatically reduced. And as such, we saw an almost immediate drop in sales. In Canada last year, Daimler sold 345 cars. 300. That's across every province. 345. And in fact, the worst, the the the, was worse in the United States. 1,276. Now you're sitting there saying, "Well, wait a minute, Marvin. That's four times as many cars, but the population of the United States is ten times the size of Canada. So proportionally, they were selling even fewer." And they said, "You know, we have a new electric vehicle coming into the market next year for the 2020 model year." We want to bring that into the United States. Let's just get rid of this. It's a full-size car. It's got a, a, um, a travel distance more in keeping with the Tesla, which is 500-plus kilometers. Let's, let's just get, stop this now and, and take it out of the market when the model year is over. So if you want one, you still have about four months to get it.
0: Uh, does this mean that battery or, or EVs will not come in small forms like a Honda Civic, like a Fiat, uh, w- which really aren't much bigger than a,
2: than a smart car? Yeah, bless you for saying that. This truly is what we like to call a micro car. It was truly smaller than those two yeah. cars you just yeah. just listed. And, and I think what it really is a signal is that in North America, micro cars, these super small cars that take up about a half a parking space, They're just really too small to make them electricize, at this moment anyway, and and they just... What will they do with them in Europe
0: then, Marvin? I mean, how will they solve this problem in Europe?
2: Well, but it's a different world in Europe. You know, every time I visit Europe, I'm always struck by how compact that continent is. They have a population larger than we have in North America in a space that's roughly the size of Canada. And so uh, that same puddle jumping is quite different there. Uh, So I think they'll still survive there. Um, so is this an issue if they would have
0: left the car gasoline powered? Perhaps it would have survived?
2: Well, let's think of it this way. It was going in the wrong direction and going electric just sped up the demise. So the whole microcar movement... Uh, it wasn't doing all that well even two or three years ago when it was gas powered. You might remember there was a company called Car2Go. This was a car sharing service. They pulled out of Toronto with these smart cars because they just, they just found it just wasn't working for them. Uh, the need wasn't there. They're still in a few other places like Vancouver and Calgary. Uh, but, but they're just, they're going away. And the same thing here. I know this is going to strike you odd when I say it, Scott, but, Gas is still relatively cheap. Now, yes, I know. It's gone up in the last little while. It's now flirting with a buck thirty a liter, but it's still relatively cheap. And what does that mean? When you push comes to shove, people buy SUVs and crossovers and, and trucks, pickup trucks. They like the big vehicles. And so, for the moment, microcars just don't seem to be where our head is at here in North America.
0: Uh, what are your thoughts in regard to the new federal rebates being offered? We remembered in the old days, uh, under the Kathleen Wynn government, we could have got up to a $14,000 rebate. Now it's 5000 for a pure EV and 2500 for a uh, hybrid. Your thoughts?
2: Well, I think part of the reason for the uh, continued rebates but at a lower rate is that electric vehicles are now becoming uh, very commercial. In other words, their price point has come down. If I look at the entry-level Tesla, which I think is the the Model 3, you know, it sells for thirty five, thirty nine thousand dollars $39,000. That's not inexpensive, but it's certainly not out of alignment with other vehicles out there. And so uh, the need to heavily subsidize these aren't there. What they're trying to do is just give you a small incentive. I think ultimately hybrids and electric vehicles are going to become the way we move. And sooner rather than later, even as soon as five to ten years from now, I think we're going to see a lot more of them. They only account for 1% of the market today. That's still very small, but it is the fastest-growing segment. And I think, again, when you know about things like carbon taxes and what's going to be happening with the price of fuel and when you hear what OPEC wants to do with a barrel of oil – You know, people are at least now considering it, and I think as soon as we get a way to quickly charge these vehicles, in other words, as fast as I can fill up at a pump, I think that's when they're going to start to become really viable.
0: Uh, Many have said, and, and you're a business prof, that if you have to subsidize something, it means the product is not healthy. Um, h- how do you balance this if, 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 if this if this is the way of the future, if this is where money is to be made for industry, why are they not spending this money on research as opposed to the taxpayer?-
2: Well, I think they are spending the money on research. I don't think you should should dismiss that. There, there isn't a car manufacturer out there that is not, no, but I'm
0: guessing why, why why make the consumer or the taxpayer pay? This is something that's going to benefit GM Ford or Daimler or whoever. So yeah. why are they not making this investment?
2: Um, well, I don't think they feel they need to. I think they feel they've got a car out there, for instance, the Chevrolet Volt, which is a commuter car, a good price point. They don't feel they need to give you a, a an incentive. I think this is more of our government trying to say, we're trying to push you a little bit in the right direction. We're doing this with both a carrot and a stick. The stick is the carbon tax. If you want to stick with fuel, it's going to cost you a bit more. But here's the carrot. If you want to switch, here's a little something to help you do it. And, and I think that's the approach the government is doing. But the private sector would tell you, I think, They feel their cars are now electric vehicles and hybrids are at a price point that anyone can buy them. They don't feel the need to subsidize them.
0: Is this rebate enough to change behavior? Will it put a consumer over the edge and make them make the purchase?
2: (laughs) Well, no, I don't think so. On the margin, there would be a few people who say, well, for a few thousand dollars, I'll make a difference. But remember, if you're going to spend thirty or thirty five thousand dollars, I'm not sure what twenty five hundred or five thousand dollars really does for you in the long run. It just gets you to take another look. And I think that's what everyone's trying to do is to say, if you looked at electric vehicles five years ago and concluded they weren't right for you then. Good. But take another look. Take another look, because they are constantly evolving. They're still not right for me. But I tell you, Scott, they're getting really close. And I could imagine when I go to buy my next vehicle in about four years, that's when I might switch over to electric myself.
0: Do you think this will affect the price of electricity moving forward? Uh, You know, I've got a friend of mine that has one of these. They say it's a minimal addition to uh, their electricity bill every month. Can we keep these prices low?
2: Yeah. So here's the funny thing, Scott. One of the reasons we have problems with our electric system today is we generate a lot more electricity than we consume. You really shouldn't blame any one person. The best minds in the province back in 2005 projected where we should be by 2019 and said we need this much capacity. What no one realized was how good we were going to be at saving. Today in 2019, we use less electricity than we did in the year 2000. We actually have reduced our demand even with more people in the province. So electric vehicles, if they wind up sucking up some of this extra capacity, it'll actually make the system run more efficiently. That's also perhaps why I'm not keen on necessarily shutting down a lot of things in our electrical system. Uh, I realize we've got surplus power, so that would seem to make sense. But if enough people started to buy these electric vehicles, we might need that extra capacity at that time. So I think it would get our system to be more efficient. I don't think we would have a lot of problems, in other words, if they all switched.
0: How close are car companies to coming up with a perfect electric car? Mm, a- well, I- and by that, I mean, you know, the same as you were saying, fills up in roughly the same period of time, goes roughly the same amount of distance, costs right. relatively the same.
2: Yeah, so they've got two out of three right now, Scott. the The range is almost perfect now. The yeah. Tesla running at about five hundred and twenty five kilometers. That's roughly what you'd get on a full tank of gas. Uh, and also the price point, thirty five thousand. That's in the right ballpark. The problem right now is the recharging time. If I was to drive to London, Ontario, and back, and and was a little worried, I wanted to charge up. It could take me a few hours to charge this. Now Tesla apparently has got some turbo charging system that will fast charge your vehicle, but even that would require something like 20, 30 minutes. Does that
0: take more electricity, one listener has asked.
2: No, I don't, I don't think the turbocharging takes more electricity. I think you need the same amount of electricity to right. recharge your battery. It's just the speed at which it can be delivered. And, and so imagine, not so much that I'm commuting to London and back, but another trip that some people take is driving to Florida. And you drive for 500 kilometers. You fill up the gas tank in five minutes. Well, now do I have to go someplace and wait 30 minutes? Ooh, you know, how is that going to affect my drive? So that's the critical one. The first two we've got. But, but Scott, again, I'm a big believer in technology. And they're working on this. They realize it's a problem. And that's why I'm thinking maybe four years, five years, for someone who truly lives in their car and drives long distances at a time, I think that's when it starts to become viable for you.
0: Marvin Reitersman with his business professor at the School of Business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. But, glad to be here. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900CHML. All right. Yesterday we were talking about uh, upheaval in Venezuela, chaos uh, after. Uh, um, well, I, I guess this initially started with um, uh, Juan Guaido, who's the uh, the head of the opposition calling for uh, basically an overthrow of government with Nicolas Maduro, uh, which is under military control. I guess there's some members of the military that have sided, uh, left Maduro, and, and gone to the other side, per se. Uh, and, and this more or less started yesterday with today being uh, the 1st of May. Uh, things were uh, uh, to come to a head today in regard to, to all of this. Uh, where is the story now? We remember yesterday watching a, a horrific or horrific footage of a military vehicle just wailing into a group of protesters uh, going right over top of one. So where are we today? Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University and is with us now. Elliot as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, uh, Good afternoon, Scott. Is this a tipping point?
3: Just the question I was going to raise. Is this the tipping point? And the answer is we're not sure as of this minute whether it is. We should remind ourselves how we got into all of this. There was a long era under Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Mm -hmm. a populist and leftist leader who did a lot of good things for the countryside in his initial foray. But increasingly over time, uh, he became authoritarian to the point of becoming uh, dictatorial. The economy began to crack, and uh, he became closer and closer aligned to Cuba and to Russia and to another lesser degree, but still there, to China. The opposition has been growing after Chavez left. His uh, his self-appointed successor, Maduro, took over. Had something like a sham election, as everybody is saying. Then power passed nominally to, by constitutional means, to the speaker in the uh, lower house, Juan Guaido, and. He's saying this is a constitutional measure. I am now the legitimate president. And that illegitimate election says that Maduro is not the legitimate president. And since then, there's been division over who gets supported. This is, really goes to January of this year. Uh, Canada and something like 50 countries have now switched their support to Juan Guaido, taking their uh, recognition of the country away from Maduro, The United States is a strong backer of the uh, would-be leader of the country. They have actually given him, Scott, access to the oil money that's uh, in the U.S. banks in the name of the country. Hmm. So that's been cut off. The U.S. is making it uh, clearer uh, and clearer that they want a change of government. Canada is a major player in this. We helped found something called the Lima Group, which is a number of Latin American states And uh, an emergency meeting has just been called by our foreign minister over the issue of the crisis. Is this a tipping point today? So we now have competing mass marches. And who's going to show the greatest support? And that's where we are.
0: Uh, heading back to the time of of uh, Chavez and, and and we all know that this country has the richest oil reserves um, and, and and was quite a profitable country for the longest time. Obviously, Chavez, uh, more of a socialist slant, as you mentioned, when this started, did quite a bit for the people and and, and raised their standards, uh, the poor people's standards of living. How did this go off the rails? How did this? The intentions seemed good at the beginning. Where did it go, where did it go awry? It's, it's a,
3: uh, there's something of a pattern here where populist leaders come to power, they do good things for the countryside, and it's the countryside then that becomes a bastion of support because nobody else has done anything for them. But meanwhile, that kind of support leads to a government which is increasingly basically corrupt and begins to loot the national treasury. You mentioned that uh, something I think a lot of people have forgotten this is potentially one of the richest countries on earth. Yeah. Current estimates, because they have the large, they're a founding member of OPEC. Mm-hmm. They've got the largest known reserves apparently uh, anywhere, including possibly the Middle East. So uh, this is a country which at the moment has,
0: Scott, 1.3 million percent inflation. So did Chavez. Shabazz- overspend did he did he not have a a a fiscal plan for all of this um uh, how how did he miscalculate this well you know
3: his supporters would say that he's a misunderstood socialist leader and that he tried to do good and therefore everybody's ganging up on him uh the uh, more widely held view is that he became just an old-fashioned dictator his personal corruption family corruption and the senior levels of the military are involved in a uh, in a broad regime that is essentially looting the country for their own benefit. And Chavez, as we know, also uh, there was an increase of violence. I personally, monitoring this from afar, turned off when I, there were there were pictures in the paper. Uh, I think two of his elections ago, when he was in power, of his people in a tower at a university shooting at students. Mm. I I always take that kind of personally.
0: My goodness. Um, can you, you talked about the oil riches, the oil money. Can those reserves, can that money get them out of this?
3: Well, who's the them? Uh,
0: yeah, good point.
3: The reason there's a lot of interest in Venezuela compared to other places in the world where there's you know, also lots of conflict and potential uh, claimants for, for legitimacy is there is oil involved. And wherever there's oil involved, you get high-level politics and low-level skullduggery, I'm afraid. So what we have today is Maduro, who's kind of the pale successor to Chavez as the type of leader he wanted, he claimed to be, uh, really opposed by the U.S. in a very important way, but also a number of other countries. Remember, the democratic countries in the Lima group are opposing uh, Maduro. So for those who are saying who's, a, who's in the right and who's in the wrong, mm. I think that's an indicator.
0: Uh, so how divided is this country? I mean, obviously it seemed that Maduro had the military, but now uh, Guaido is, is slowly encouraging defectors to come over. How divided is Venezuela? How divided is the military?
3: Well, the country has had millions of people flee the country. One estimate, uh, I think CBC had this on, is that 80% of the households in the country don't have enough to eat. Refugees are flowing into Colombia and Brazil in particular. Uh, So when you have people fleeing the country because of the domestic situation, the economy, that's a a pretty strong indicator. The military brass at the top have a vested interest in the maintenance of the regime as it is. The question has been all along, what about the mid-level and lower level? And there's also an an active National Guard. Some of the National Guard apparently, but we don't know what percent, has gone over to um, Guadal The senior leadership, however, the military still seems to be there. And uh, just to add to this, who are the allies? The allies of the Maduro regime, going back to Chavez, are very strongly Cuba. Cuba is getting basically cheap oil in exchange. There's an estimate that up to 45,000 Cubans um, performing various roles are sustaining the regime uh Cuba says we do not have military troops there but they do apparently have security forces and one of the reports yesterday was that when Maduro was was defiantly uh finally coming out of basically uh, he'd been invisible for a while he was surrounded by Cuban uh security forces in a, at a military base so uh, Russia has military troops on the ground but only as advisors uh, so China is uh, very very interested in what's going on because Here's a, champ, a chance to gain influence in the, in, in the Americas. And again, there's oil.
0: Uh, there was uh, ch- uh, talk floating around yesterday that Maduro was ready to back off, was yes. ready to step down, and Russia said, no, no, stay in there. But look what, where that what, talk, what does that mean?
3: Yes, look where the talk came from. That was from Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State of the United States, who made that statement. Right. So it's not a rumor around... Facebook (laughs) right uh, now that's the the room what he he reported what he publicly said was there was a plane on the tarmac waiting to take Maduro to Cuba and at that point uh, the Russian advisors said no don't do that Uh, it's a bad idea Uh, Maduro has denied this today and the Russians have said that's not This hasn't happened but it's an indication that the US at least at a minimum is trying to promote a change of government, saying this is, to answer your question, a tipping point. And the tipping point has arrived. But at the moment, uh, what we have are uh, Juan Guaido may or may not be able to split the military. He's called on the civil service to withdraw their support uh, from the... Maduro could not run a government without the civil servants, so he's called on them. Today is... Uh, is international May Day, Labor Day, yep. and the labor support has been very strong for Maduro. They've, been, they've benefited from his, his uh, regime. We have competing um, demonstrations. Who can bring out the most uh, people, where, how many, what type of people, and therefore will we see a tipping point or not? And that's an open question at the minute.
0: Venezuela, as you mentioned, supplies oil to Cuba. That's their interest in this. But if Cuba seemed to be helping Venezuela, what does that do to U.S. Cuban relations? (laughs) Which, you know, during Barack Obama, they were trying to move forward.
3: Yes. And then this gets all wrapped up in in hard to track ways uh, into domestic U.S. politics because you have to carry Florida. And what's the Hispanic vote uh, implications Mm -hmm. of all of this? In Florida, you need a a real expert on the intricacies of, of that dimension of the Florida politics, in order, but all of this does have to do in part with domestic U.S. politics. Uh, running against Cuba is a good position for the Republican Party traditionally, but Trump in particular, who's now trying to say that the Democrats are the party of anti-Semitism, infanticide, and socialism. Socialism means Cuba, Cuba means et cetera. So this p- plays into the American domestic political scene, as
0: well. So now that uh, allegedly, apparently, Russia has convinced Maduro to stay, does that mean things will accelerate? What sort of backing support is he getting from them to change things? Obviously, uh, you know, it was thought Maduro, it was time to leave. He was ready if there's planes on the tarmac. What, what would have changed this? What, what are they getting in return from Russia?
3: Russia has loaned Substantial amounts of money to the regime, which would be defaulted if there's
0: a change yeah. of regime. But they pay them in
3: oil, right? Uh, yes, and they. Uh, but it's deeper than that because this is also raising uh, basically the Russian flag in America's backyard. And John Bolton this morning said on air a couple of interesting things. One, John Bolton is the is the uh, national. He's the. Director of security and, and for America, basically, and he's very influential inside the Trump administration. So what he said this morning is, uh, we are dusting off the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine was an old doctrine saying uh, the Americas, South and North, they're under our sphere of influence, and we will not accept foreigners intruding. Well, you know, when you've got Chinese and <laughs> Russians inside. Venezuela there you are but he also said uh, when asked what about military force and he said we do we prefer this is the standard line of the Trump administration we prefer a peaceful transfer of power but no options are off the table military force is definitely on the table right and then you and I have talked about American politics quite a bit Scott Uh, there's an election coming yeah just 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 to toss some stuff up in the air there's an election coming in America. Suppose it's tight. Suppose you need a nice, as somebody recently said to me, a convenient war, a dandy little war, to rally the American public around the president uh, as as troops are put in harm's way. Where in the world would you want to do that? And if Venezuela, in a sense, is is volunteering, I mean, this is just a, a hypothetical scenario. But it's the kind of talk that you are now hearing because of the situation that we see of a divided government with legitimacy uh, being disputed geopolitically, ne- internationally, globally,
0: yeah, yeah.
3: and also domestically within the country itself.
0: Uh, how is Donald Trump reacting to this? We hear a lot from Pompeo, a lot from That's the staff, but he's not, he's, not, he's not very verbal on this. I think he's
3: a little preoccupied. Yeah, uh, could you be. have to assume <laughs> that the Secretary of State <laughs> you have to assume that Bolton and Pompeo speak for the president and when you hear them speak you're hearing the president speak uh, the president apparently launched 60 tweets this morning I haven't kept up with them so whether Venezuela's in there or not but to come back home Venezuela is very much on the minds of her own foreign minister and we are playing an active role in trying to get a peaceful transition of power to a legitimate government in Venezuela against an entrenched uh, authoritarian regime, which has bankrupted
0: the country. Uh, normally, Donald Trump gets along fine with those types of leaders. D- does, he, does he have the capacity to deal with this? Um, the,
3: I can't. <laughs> you want me to read the mind of Donald Trump? Yeah, exactly. Uh, A <laughs> so
0: question I, you can't answer.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I can only speculate that he sees it more in his political interest to stand against an ally of Russia and Cuba and China in the Americas than in cozying up to this particular authoritarian ruler.
0: Hmm. Uh, So uh, Trump perhaps more concerned with uh, Attorney General Barr testifying before a Senate committee today than he is with Venezuela? I'm glad
3: to turn to that. But again, uh, let's remember this is also domestic U.S. politics. A lot of what we see has to do with Florida in ways which are kind of invisible for us to, to diagnose. But I suspect that the electoral votes of Florida loom very large in the, in the thinking of, of Donald Trump and his administration. Now, on William Barr, yes, what would you like to discuss?
0: Uh, <laughs> we've only got a couple of minutes left. Just your opinion on what's going on and his testimony in front of this committee. Will we find out any more from him?
3: I think what we're going to find, what I'm curious about is, how partisan is he going to be? Uh, what we have known for some time now is that he has seen himself basically as a defender of the president, uh, rather than the voice of the of the people of America. Uh, as an independent voice, he has played a controversial role. We've heard now from Mueller himself uh, through a leaked letter saying, "You misrepresented you, Barr, yeah. my my old friend of thirty years, and our our wives go to the same prayer b- groups together. You have misrepresented what." my report actually did uh, in substance in substance you misrep told the american so here's my quick take on this first of all it's not going to matter whatever we happen to see likely because america by and large has already made up its mind one way or another on the Mueller report it's not likely to change who governs in twenty twenty unless something else comes out so that's one thing the second thing is we are in a constitutional slow motion crisis in america You've got, and, and, and Barr is in the middle of that, and he's, he's supposed to be an institutionalist, and yet we see uh, an evolving uh, constitutional crisis there, uh, and that's going on in our backyard.
0: Elliot Tepper has been with us, emeritus professor of political science, Carleton University. Elliot, always a pleasure. Fascinating stuff. I'm sure we'll chat more about it. Thank Anytime. you, Elliot. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Melissa, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
4: Hi Scott, sorry I'm in a little bit of a noisy place, but it has to be if that's okay with you.
0: No problem whatsoever. Uh, so a couple of things I wanted a couple of things I want to talk to you about. First, uh, since we were just talking about the uh, burkini, and I mm-hmm. don't know whether you saw this in Sports Illustrated or not, but uh, I don't know. is this is this progress? Is this exploitation or just great PR from a magazine who now we're all talking about?
4: I'll tell you what it is. It's PR deflection, Scott. Sports yeah. Illustrated hasn't been in the news for a very, very long time. Yeah. So, you know, listen, when I was in university, which was a long time ago, I used to read it every week and I loved it. And then, like most magazines, it has lost its relevancy. However, the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue still has a, a bit of a cachet. Yeah. And if you remember, in Times Square, they would actually reveal the front cover and the... Um, and the uh, Who it was. was the, and the model was... Yeah, there.
0: it was like a big deal, deal for a... It
4: was a big deal. Yeah. So, but they've never gotten rid of it yet. So, however, if you're going to come out with a, a swimsuit issue with scantily clad women... Then you're essentially going to have to answer to all the Me Too uh, factions and come up with some sort of narrative that deflects that bad publicity. By having a woman in a burkini all covered up, not showing any skin, well, you know, that's a very provocative and interesting story. And I have to tell you that, you know, people have been talking about it all across the dial for the past 48 hours. So, you know, the, the strategy worked. Do I think that Sports Illustrated should be commended for, you know, starting this narrative? Yes. Do I think that they're going to extend this narrative and keep it going? No, I think it's absolutely ephemeral and it's like here today gone tomorrow
0: So so there won't be more like this in, in future issues.
4: you know what maybe there will be, but I, I you know it'll be a one-off thing so we may hear about it again you know same time next year, but honestly, I can't see this uh, going I can't, I can't see this being a consistent
0: narrative throughout the year. So does this I guess does this advance women does it advance Muslim women or is this progress is this exploitation?
4: I think you can look at it. It it might have a percentage of all of that into it. I prefer to think of it that it is showing that women can be beautiful and they don't have to completely bare their bodies to do it and they could be all covered up. So based on that, um, I think that that's a good thing. You know, a lot of people are having some very negative comments. If you read the commentary, which I suggest that you don't because it's very disheartening. If you read the commentary at the end of these articles uh, on the web, you know, they're very anti-Muslim, they're very, very angry, they're very, very misogynistic. So I prefer to, to look at it as a, uh, a positive narrative and about showing women in a different light. Uh,
0: I'm saying exploitation because I thought the idea behind the burqa was to draw attention away from the physicality of the woman. Um that's why they were traditionally black in in just like a giant cape. Uh this garment, obviously a lot more fashionable, a lot more comfortable. As I mentioned, the pictures are beautiful. They're stunning. But that being said, does that not defeat the purpose of the of the item of clothing in the first place?
4: No, I don't think it does. Like what do you mean? Because
0: the attention well, the whole idea of the burqa was to hide women, keep them their their beauty, their their uh their physical appearance uh, behind a cover. Now, what we're doing is highlighting that cover, and we're drawing attention to it.
4: Well, I think that there there will be many people in Muslim countries who may have something to say about that. I can't, you know, I don't want to be to generalize here, but it, you know, uh, it'll be interesting to hear what the um, the commentary is uh, coming out of there. But you know, is it drawing attention or? or I don't know, drawing attention to her non-physicality? I mean, I'm not sure. I think what it does is it allows you to draw your eye elsewhere as opposed to the obvious places when you're wearing a bikini. Let's just say that. And this way, you know... So
0: it's about body parts as long as they're covered?
4: No, I just think it's about physicality, holistic physicality and beauty. That's Mm. what I think it's about.
0: Um, the, the fact that this is a U.S. magazine, uh, you, those and not everyone, but and again, I'm generalizing, um, they have a different attitude of Muslims perhaps than we do. Is this more of a tinderbox issue down there than up here, um, not only for doing something um, out of the ordinary for the magazine, but also doing something that can be quite divisive?
4: You know, that's why you do these things. Um, when you when you take on a strategy like this, somebody said to me, well, I don't know what that's going to do for sales. I said, this isn't about sales. This isn't about selling copies. This is about changing the narrative of women in bikinis and, and, and exploiting women in that way. And it's interesting when you say, is this a version of exploitation? It's almost reverse exploitation, Scott. It's saying, well, let's think No, the- reverse
0: exploitation would be a woman in a burqa.
4: Well, yes, I guess so. But I think that they're using a covered up woman yeah. as a way of exploiting her beauty, but in a different way. In right. Different I see conversation. that. So that, that, that's kind of where I'm going, though. Like, is this going to be a tinderbox issue in the States? I think absolutely it is. But honestly, Scott, if you open up the National Post from yesterday or even just go on their website about this article and you read the comments, I don't think they sound that much different than what you'll read from south of the border.
0: Hmm. Who benefits the most from this social experiment?
4: Sports Illustrated. Yeah. Nobody's been talking about them the way they have been for the past 48 hours in the last decade or two, maybe. I mean, the only time you ever hear about Sports Illustrated is what they, if you ever heard about it, the Sports Illustrated curse. So once you're on the cover of Sports Illustrated, especially in golf, you'll never win a major again. And I have to tell you, I think that that happened to Mike Weir, if I'm not mistaken. Wow, well, there so. you go.
0: Some <laughs> may debate on job. the re- some may, be de- they may debate that reason for you. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, uh, how do they follow this up? What do they do?
4: They don't do anything. They let it go. This is one issue, one issue only, and then they get back to business in the next issue.
0: NBA playoffs. So is the swimsuit edition of Sports Illustrated, is, is it past its, its, uh, its shelf date?
4: You know, I think that people still do look for it. It doesn't have the excitement that it used to. So I think that it has. It's not quite on the expired shelf, Scott, but it's certainly getting close to it. But by changing the narrative and looking at, you know, women and different types of beauty, they are extending the shelf date a little bit.
0: Uh, is this one of those issues where the tried-and-true who, who follow this will always accept it, but m- the mainstream is where this splits?
4: Probably. Probably. It's it, You know, it's interesting about the conversation that's been ignited about this. I mean, honestly, would you ever talk about Sports Illustrated in the past in these terms? Never. You know, would you ever talk about Sports Illustrated in terms of um, gauging public consciousness? Yeah. Never. So I, I think that what we have to look at is the type of conversation that is uh, being engaged in as a result of this um, as a result of this issue, and that it's a masterful strategy, and that it's really expanding the narrative in in a way that um, has never been expanded before with this with this magazine. So would
0: you give them two thumbs up for this strategy? I, I, oh yes, I would. Yeah. Oh yes, I Cause would. Because we're talking about it. Yep. And the interesting thing about this is this will be discussed on on many 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 levels. It'll be discussed on the Me Too movement level, it'll be discussed on the on the Muslim level. I mean there's there's so many different angles to this conversation.
4: And honestly, Sports Illustrated will probably answer to none of it. They, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sure, they have a statement that we, you know, uh, want to express beauty in a number of different ways by looking at it from an international perspective, and I think that you can get away with it with a very benign holding statement, and they're not going to engage in any political discourse at all. And why? Because that's not their bailiwick.
0: Can you name who's on the cover of this year's Sports Illustrated? No, but we can. Well, I, I have the name written down of this lady. So isn't it interesting that this woman? is even superseding the cover.
4: Well, this is it. And normally the cover will make a model's career.
0: Yeah, big time.
4: Who is on the cover?
0: I don't know.
1: Oh, I thought you were... Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you just assumed I had a magazine <laughs> right in front of me.
1: Is it Cheryl I
0: Keyes. thought it would be so Cheryl. Time. It's Cheryl Teeks, Yeah, the edges, Is the pa- the pages are curled a little bit, but yeah, that's who's on it. Oh man! All right, let's move on. Doug Ford, uh, Premier Doug Ford, on with Fox, uh, Varney and Company uh, uh, the the other day, and he's down there selling. Don't say my gosh yet. He's selling. Okay. He's selling. Uh, he's selling Ontario to the United States. Have you watched this interview?
4: Uh no, but I certainly read about it.
0: You should watch it because this is the best interview Doug Ford has ever done.
4: Well, he's with his own peeps, right?
0: That's what everybody like, says. That's the easiest thing.
4: It's like Ontario News Now. It's like his own channel, right? <laughs> All it's
0: right. Not- Let's listen. Here is an excerpt from that show. You're cutting red tape. That's right. You're cutting taxes on business. That's correct. That's Trumpian. Well, I, I don't know.
3: We were in uh, politics well before the president was, but... Uh, no, so I respect. he's
0: taking a leaf out of your yeah.
3: book. Well, I, I don't know about that, but uh, I'll tell you, we, uh, we're really focusing on telling the world that Ontario's open for business, open for jobs cutting regulations cutting all the red tape lowering taxes putting money back into the people's pocket because uh Stuart so I, I always say when when companies thrive when you put pro job legislation pro-business legislation when companies thrive people thrive communities thrive
0: now all right there's just an excerpt of the interview uh, I suggest you go back and watch it because I thought well, that he part I heard that I thought part I heard yeah because that's the that's the clip about Trump yeah. um but but I thought he handled himself and looked uh, uh uh, it displayed more leadership qualities during this interview than any interview I've ever seen of him. Well, you know, he
4: wasn't on the attack, right? This was a very proactive, pro-Doug Ford interview. So, you know, there, there was nowhere to go but up for him. There and was friendly was, fire there. I, I was just going to say he was in a very friendly space. And also the, uh, the interviewer seemed to really uh, admire him. And, you know, you know when you're being interviewed, when the person is friendly. You know when the person admires you. And let me tell you, that will change the tenor of your demeanor,
0: of the way you sit, and of the way you speak.
4: And it can really uh, really change the demeanor of a whole interview.
0: Well, I'm guessing, and and I watched the whole interview, and I'm thinking, uh, and again, typical American that doesn't really know all that much about about what's really going on in Canada. But I, I think what the commentator was trying to prove was that, you know, everybody's cutting up our guy, but look, they got a guy that's similar to that. And of course, Ford, and I've asked him this when he sat here, um, he, he pushes away on the Trump stuff. He, he he does not want to be compared to that in, in any way. And I thought he handled that quite well.
4: Well, he also pushed away there. I mean, you know, it was a very, very bold answer, Scott, to say, well, we've yeah. been in politics a lot longer than he has. Yeah. And I thought, whoa. But then I thought, well, it's true yeah these yeah. guys have been in politics for decades, and you know, Trump has sort of like slipped in in the last you know four or five, six years. So I thought that that answered, and of course, that's the clip that's being played, but it was also a very, very bold answer.
0: And it didn't
4: seem to phase. Uh, the Fox interviewer, which I found very interesting. And,
0: you know, you brought up an interesting point there. It didn't seem to phase Ford that much either. Like, usually he seems really uneasy during these situations and and, and inevitably um, looks sounding uncomfortable or awkward and such. That didn't seem to be the case here.
4: You know, know, what's interesting is that... um, you know, when you're in that type of situation and normally, you know, the, the Ontario and the Toronto press, yeah, uh, they, they don't, you know, they don't take any prisoners and, you know, they're always, you know, going for the jugular. So, but that's the same, that's the same case with any, any, any politician. But I will say it's almost like, and I don't think Doug Ford would like me to say this, but I, it's almost like he's doing the Trudeau strategy. When things get too hot at home. Trudeau used to go elsewhere, so mm. he would go to another foreign country, and there'd be screaming girls, and there'd be people falling all over him, and he was the, the young, virile prime minister of Canada, which that sheen has certainly worn off, but the foreign press, whether it was Vanity Fair or you know any yeah. other publication outside of this country, was falling all over themselves about Justin trudeau so you know when things get too hot at home go find some press elsewhere that will still play here and that has worked perfectly in this case
0: uh does this do doug ford any favors uh does it depend on who you ask many have said like i've said he he seemed to hold his own in the interview many have said well he's on trump's favorite network so that means he's just like him so is this a detriment or is this a, a, an asset
4: I think that it, you're absolutely right. It depends who you ask. If you're a uh, Ford supporter, then you're like, you know what, he did a great job. And that's a, you know, he looked very statesmanlike. And I was, you know, people would be very proud of that. But if you don't like Ford, then you're just saying, well, listen, he was in friendly territory. There was no uh, unfriendly fire and there was a little bit of a law. There was a little bit of a walk in the park. So based on that, uh, you know, not so impressed.
0: All right. One other thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, this is a story that's getting a bit of attention, not a lot. Uh, it's uh, it's on Global's website. Canadian soldiers carry guns in full fighting order at Toronto's uh, at a Toronto Sikh parade. The forces called it misguided. Uh, this was a Sikh parade that was in Toronto and the military unit uh, walking down uh, the street with their uh, with their weapons out just as if they were um, I guess waiting for something to happen your thoughts on this picture and, and the reaction to it
4: well you know and anytime you see any sort of force on our streets it it it's strikes fear, I think, in everybody's hearts. And, you know, when you see a juxtaposed you know a different culture, then automatically you create your own opinions as to what's going on in that picture, if you don't have any context, you
0: I, know, I should say that this is a, uh, a, a seat command here, and the men are all wearing turbans, beards, and then they have their automatic rifles in front of them. Other than that, they look like regular Canadian soldiers. Does that change our perception? If it was a bunch of white guys walking down the road with their rifles out, would we have cared.
4: Um, I think that Canadians would have cared. I think that we're sensitive to that situation. I think that whether you're Sikh or you're white, or if you're walking down Toronto streets with your rifles out in front of you, I think that that would uh, absolutely color perception.
0: Military protocol is pretty strong. How does this happen?
4: You know, I don't know, but I, you know, I have to think that when there's a parade like this, then. I think the protocols change and I think that, you know, the police service and uh, all those who, you know, take care of security, all those who take care of us in uh, public situations, I think that it's just a different game, Scott. And it's not like it was when we were when we were kids, like you would never, ever see such a show of force. But in a case like this, um, with things happening all over the world, you know, you can't be too careful so that you err on the side of caution that for being, everybody's protection.
0: That being said, it's 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 never that military will parade this way in as they called it full fighting order. So it, it never happens. They don't they don't march this way. They don't march with their weapons out. So uh, again, how does it happen even once?
4: I don't know. I honestly don't know. I'd have to read into the situation a little bit more in order to understand it better. But if you're just looking at it as a picture, uh, as a regular consumer of news, as a picture in a paper or on a website, you 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 will make your own judgments.
0: All right. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant principal at Alyssa, Fre- uh, Alyssa Freeman PR, commenting on all things political and controversial. Alyssa, is always, thanks so much for the time. Thank you, Scott.